and turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Mark has been showing to us the authority of Jesus Christ and how the people respond to that authority. And soon we will be getting to the place where they reject his authority and uh, begin to cause him to suffer. And in Mark chapter 4 here, he began last week, as we saw, verses 1 through 20, with the parable of the soils. He talked about four different types of responses that people have to the Word of God. And this week we're going to see the privilege that we have in knowing Christ and the response that we should have. That we should be responsible to cultivate spiritual fruit in our lives by pursuing the Word of God. Let's begin reading with Mark chapter 4, verse 21. And he, Jesus, was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown... It grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it, and he did not speak to them without a parable, because he, or but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. I want to begin here at the end of this passage that we read, and I want to show you the nature of Christ's teaching in verses 33 and 34. The nature of Christ's teaching. With many such parables, He was speaking the Word to them so far as they were able to hear it, and He did not speak to them without a parable, but He was explaining everything privately to His own disciples. Jesus now is showing what kind of teaching He is going to give to His disciples, particularly uh, the twelve who are following him, but also those extended disciples who are behind him. Now, when Jesus taught, he wanted to speak in parables for a specific reason. And we're going to see what those reasons are as we look at this passage today. The, the problem with parables is that their meaning is not self-evident. He doesn't just come out and say what he's trying to say. Instead, he shows them a picture. 
And we see here in verse 34 that he explains all of these things privately to his own disciples. It wasn't that he was leaving them out there to be confused because these parables are difficult to understand. Now for us, uh, sometimes the, the writers of Scripture give us the reasoning or the meaning behind the parables, but other times they do not. Like in several of these parables that we're going to look at today, they don't tell us what Jesus is meaning when he says these things. So why is it that Jesus spoke in parables? I think he did it for two primary reasons. One was to teach spiritual truth to those who had ears to hear. Look look back to verse 9, a verse that we looked at quickly last week. Jesus was showing them the importance of his teaching. He says, and he was saying, he who has ears, let him hear. And then look at verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus was showing them that in order for them to hear, they had to have spiritual ears to be able to understand what he had been saying. In verse 11, Jesus says, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. There were people who had the hearts that were a lot like what we talked about last week, the good soil. The soil that responded to the, the, uh, the water that, w- that it was uh, able to, to receive from God. And it responded in what way? By producing spiritual fruit. And so God is, or Jesus is saying here that if you have ears, if you have spiritual ears, if you have been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, then you will be able to hear what I have to say and you'll be able to understand it. So the first purpose for Jesus speaking in parables was to teach spiritual truth. The second purpose is maybe a little bit harder to understand, and that is Jesus spoke in parables in order to hide spiritual truth from those who were not his followers. Look at verse 11 with me. <clears throat> These are a couple of verses that I skipped over last week, and so I want to go back and, and quickly uh, show you what Jesus is doing here. Verse 11, And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. That is, the disciples were given that. But those who are outside, they get everything in parables, so that, While seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Jesus quotes a passage from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And he's talking, Isaiah there is talking about the hard-heartedness of Israel. He's showing them that, that even though they hear the same things that we hear, they don't understand. They're not able to perceive, even though they see, they can't fully understand what is, being go- what is going on here. And Jesus alludes to that in Isaiah chapter 6. By, and he does that because he's trying to say that, listen, these parables that I'm giving to people, they don't fully understand what I'm saying. These truths that I'm giving to them, they don't fully understand, nor will they, because their hearts are hardened. In fact, if we were to look back at Isaiah chapter 6, that's exactly what Isaiah says, that their hearts are hardened. The cause of their unbelief was their own spiritual hard-heartedness. 
It is like Romans 1 talks about that, that the people of this world, they suppress the truth. They don't want to hear what God has to say to them. Because they know that it means that they have to respond to it. That they have to submit themselves to it. And so what Jesus was doing here with parables is He was actually not only judging them, but also showing mercy. He was judging them because He kept the darkness, He kept them in the darkness that they loved. John chapter 3, verse 19 says that, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They love it. And so Jesus, in a way, is judging them by giving them what they want. Allowing them to wallow in their spiritual darkness. But He's also showing them mercy. And the way that He shows them mercy is by not giving them more light than they already have. As we'll see here, the more light that we receive, the more we are responsible for. The more we should return with a proper lifestyle. And if they had received the light, then then they would probably have rejected it even more. And they would have harbored even deeper hardness to God's truth. And so Jesus was showing them mercy by saying, listen, you're not going to respond anyway because your heart is hardened. And so I won't uh, make you worthy of more condemnation. I will just speak to you in parables. And then what he would do is take his disciples aside and speak to them privately about what those parables meant. So that is what Jesus is doing, and we'll see this throughout the book of Mark and the Gospels, that Jesus will speak to them in parables in order to teach His disciples and to hide truth from those who are opposed to Him. Now the reason that parables are so important, or truth in general is so important, is found in verses 21-25 through 25 of our passage. Parables are so important, verses 21-23, through 23, first of all, because they reveal what is hidden. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus was saying to them, verse 21 begins with, we know that he is Jesus in the New American Standard. He is capitalized, so we know that's referring to deity. And But the, the question is, wh- who is Jesus talking to? It says He was saying to them. Well, I think we have to go back to verse 10 and we'll see the answer to that. Verse 10 says, As soon as He, Jesus, was alone, His followers, along with the twelve, began asking Him about the parables. Okay, so Jesus was talking specifically to not just his twelve disciples, but also the the other followers, or we could say disciples, that were coming alongside of them and wanted to hear more about what Jesus had to say. They were genuine followers of Christ. And you remember that Jesus began the parable in, in Mark chapter four, verses one through uh eight, where he just gives the parable, just the illustration But then he takes his disciples and these others aside. So that's who Jesus is talking to here in verse 21. And he begins his parable, really, with a rhetorical question. He says, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? Jesus would often use these rhetorical questions in order to cause his hearers 
to affirm what he is already trying to say. Okay, sometimes when you speak, you can say just a declaration. God is good. Okay, that's a declaration. But in order for get, to get the hearer to say that, you would say, isn't God good? And this is a rhetorical question. It's meant for you as the hearer to respond with the affirmative answer, yes, God is good. So that you respond with what the speaker wants to say. And this is what Jesus does. Look what he does there in verse 21. A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? The implied answer that his hearers will say automatically in their minds is, no, a lamp is not meant to be put under a bed. A lamp is to be put upon a lampstand. That's what he says at the end of the verse. Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? It's not to be hidden. It's to be revealed. A lamp was not meant to, to find some hiding place where no one could see it. Now the lamp here is a small clay bowl with a spout to hold a wick and a small amount of oil that served as fuel. And often they would bring them into the house and put it on a protruding shelf that would come out of the, the wall, set it up on the lampstand so that it would illumine the entire room. And the meaning is not here that, like we often hear even as kids, that, that this is the gospel. Okay, That if we just shine the gospel to the... Let this little light shine to, to all the people around us. I mean, I think the scriptures are clear that we should shine our gospel light, um, perhaps in other parts of scripture. But, but here particularly, this is not referring to the gospel and that we, we need to share it in that way. In fact these followers of Jesus did not even have the gospel at this, at this time, did they? They didn't even know that Jesus would die and rise again at this point. So that, that is the gospel according to Paul, is it not? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, um, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. These followers of Jesus did not have the gospel, so what Jesus is talking about is not the gospel. Rather, he's talking about truth in general. That truth is not meant to be hidden. It's not meant to have a cover thrown over it so that people cannot see it. Rather, it's meant to be revealed, to be exposed. Jesus was unveiling the light of truth to these disciples. And that's why in verse 23 he says, if anyone has ears, let him hear. What I'm telling you here, disciples, is very important. You need to understand what this means in light of the historical Scriptures. I'm revealing something, something to you that is very important. And I'm about to show you the purpose of this truth and why you had that whole Old Testament that you have. The purpose of all of that was pointing to me. And so I want to reveal this to you. And the way that I'm going to reveal this to you is through speaking in parables. I'm going to speak to you and then I'm going to explain what I mean. I'm going to show you by my word and my, by my conduct what it means to really follow God. So the first uh, reason that parables are so important is because they reveal what is hidden. Secondly, in verses 24 and 25, parables are so important because they bring us great responsibility. Verse 24, 
And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken from him. Here, Jesus is giving us both a promise and a warning. That there's a promise here that if we understand God's truth, if we take the truth that God gives us, and we seek and and work hard to understand it, then God will give us more to understand. But there's also a warning here, and that is those who reject these teachings of Jesus and have no interest in God's truth, those who allow God's truth to come and hit them and, and just bounce off of them or to roll off their back, they will soon find themselves farther away from God's truth than, than when they had first received it. And so what Jesus is saying is that, that with truth comes responsibility. That's why He says, verse 24, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will give, be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And who does, whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away. The application for us is that we cannot allow ourselves to become hardened to God's truth. Don't allow yourself to to slip into spiritual apathy. Because if we are continually rejecting God's truth, even the truth that we have will be taken from us to the point where we don't want to hear God's truth. And we really affirm that we really never had spiritual life. That we, if we are people who are not responding to the Word, you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, twenty, verse twenty-four. He said, "I will liken a man who hears my word and responds to it to a person who built his house upon a rock." And we saw last week that, that all of those bad soils, all of those soils, whether it be the rocky soil, the, the hardened road soil, um, or the thorny soil, they all heard God's Word. And so it's not enough for us to hear it. We have to respond to it. We have to accept it, believe it, and allow it to change our lives. The difference between believers and unbelievers is not that believers go to church. The difference between believers and unbelievers is not that they read the Bible. The difference between believers and unbelievers is not that they hear the Word of God preached. The difference is that believers respond to it. They accept the truth of God and they respond to it. So are you responding to the Word of God every time it is exposed to you? When you read it for yourself, is it just a robotic thing so that you can check off your list? Or are you responding, what is God saying to to me? And how should I change as a result of it? When the Word of God is spoken to you, when it's taught or preached to you, how are you responding to it? We need to respond to the Word of God. There's several ways that we can. One is, as we're reading through the Psalms, even in our Scripture reading as a church, we should be able to praise God for what He has done. Sometimes there's not necessarily a, an act 
of obedience that we have to perform besides praising God. Just thank you, God, that you are a God who... And then read back what the psalm you just read. That you are a God who cares. That you are a God of compassion. So on. We can also respond through obedience, obviously, by changing something in our lives, by by listening to God and and uh, committing to Him. We can re- respond by confessing sin. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school that when we see a genuine representation of who God is through His Word, then the natural response is to recognize our worthlessness before Him and all the sin that comes. Psalm chapter 19, verses 12 through 14. That was David's response when he saw God's Word. Now, don't expect perfection in this area. Turn over to Mark chapter 8. Okay, don't expect perfection because what what I don't want you to think is, well, sometimes I don't respond to God's Word, so maybe I'm not a believer. But I don't want you to think that necessarily because the disciples were in the same boat that we often find ourselves in. In fact, in this case, they literally were in a boat. Chapter 8, verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving them orders, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? And so on. What I want you to notice is verse 18. Notice that those letters there in your Scripture are all capitalized. And that is because that is a quotation from the Old Testament. And what Jesus is doing is using that same quotation that He was using of the Pharisees, the religious leaders who rejected Him. He was using that on His disciples. He's saying, are you like them? Are you allowing them to leaven uh, your thinking? Having eyes do you not yet see? Having ears do you not yet hear? So, We should not expect perfection when it comes to responding to the truth. There will be times where we reject God's truth. But the general pattern of a believer is that they do respond to the truth. And so we should should, uh, respond to it as well. All right, let me uh, have you turn back to chapter 4 because we need to look at these two sample parables that Jesus gives to help show us that God accomplishes His purpose with His Word. Verses 26 through 32. First thing that we see is that God, God's word produces exactly what is intended. Verse 26. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. The soil produces crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts the sickle, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now this is referring to really, I think, an elaboration of what we saw in chapter four, verse twenty, and that is that there was seed that was planted in the good soil, and what was the response of that seed? 
They heard the it was people who had heard the word, accepted it, and bore fruit. Thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And Jesus is saying, listen, the nature of the kingdom of God is such that when the seed is planted inside of you, there will be a, a spiritual growth that takes place. This is what we call progressive sanctification. It is a constant, forward-moving, gradual progress towards Christ-likeness. Now, there will not be a time on this earth where we will be exactly like Christ. But we should be moving towards that because all believers do. They respond by bearing fruit. There's no such thing as microwave sanctification. Sometimes we wish it would happen that way, and maybe we've often prayed that way. God, I, I want to change, so change me. Okay, I, I'm ready. I'm ready to give up that sin, so, so get me out of it. And we think that, oh, the next day, all the consequences and the desires for that sin will be no more because, hey, we've had that desire. But growth in godliness takes time. It is a constant and ongoing, forward-moving progress. It is a regular uh, pattern of us saying yes to God and saying no to sin. That's what believers do. It's often like uh, climbing a mountain. There will be dips in our spiritual life. There will be plateaus where we feel like we're not making any progress. But the general pattern is, the general trajectory is towards Christ-likeness. And we are moving towards growth, growth in godliness. In fact, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 18, he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We are being transformed into one level of glory to another level of glory. We're more and more like Jesus Christ. It is not an instantaneous process. So don't get discouraged when you have times of doubt, when you have times of frustration, when you have times of disobedience. Recognize that you need to get back on the right path, yes. But sanctification, the progress of Spiritual change takes time. It takes time. And that's what Jesus is saying in this parable. He says the soil produces the crop and so on. The seed sprouts. No one knows how it works. We don't know how the sanctification progress works. All we know is that God is doing the work and that we need to cultivate that growth. So, how are we sanctified? How are we sanctified? If, this, if we're expected to grow and to bear fruit, how does this process happen? Well, we do know that God does the work and that He does it through His Word. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them, God. Sanctify them, my followers, in Your truth. And then He tells us what God's truth is. Your Word is truth. So the, the transformation process happens only through God's Word. We shouldn't expect God to magically bring us to godliness apart from His Word. We shouldn't expect growth to happen apart from His Word. Rather, it happens by when we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25-27. He says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
They then do do it to, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box as not beating the air. But what does he do? He disciplines his body in order to make it his slave so that after he has preached to others, he is without excuse. Paul says, I discipline my body. And that is exactly what we must do when it comes to growth and godliness. We have to discipline ourselves for the purpose of sanctification. God's Word does not only produce exactly what is intended, it produces all that is intended. Verses 30-32. through 32. And He said to them, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. The mustard plant was an herb. The mustard seed was the smallest seed that was actually used to produce something in those days. It's not the smallest seed ever sown, but it was the smallest one that they actually used. And it would grow up to as much as 12 to 15 feet tall and have stalk as thick as 3 to 4 feet. 3 to 4 inches, excuse me, thick. And so it could grow large. In fact, so large, verse 32, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches that even birds can nest under. Now, the, the point that Jesus is making, I think, here is He's making the, the contrast here between the small mustard seed at the beginning that goes in the ground and the large response at the end. Okay, here I don't think he's talking about sanctification or the spread necessarily of the gospel, but rather the kingdom. And the reason I say that is because he quotes from Ezekiel chapter 17 at the end of verse 32. You see that there. So that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. The comparison that Jesus is making is that the kingdom, when it was small, it starts out with just Jesus and His disciples, a small group of people, and you think, what's going to come of that? That's not going to be anything. That's not going to produce anything great. And yet at the end of the time when the kingdom is finally established on this earth during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the 1,000 years, then it will be so great that the other nations, that's what the birds are referring to. Let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 17 and we'll end here. Ezekiel chapter 17. Now some people would suggest that birds are always a bad thing in the Scriptures. In fact, when we looked last week at Mark chapter 4, we saw that who was it that came and ate up those seeds that were thrown along the side of the road. Who was it? It was the birds. And what did Jesus liken the birds to there? Who was it that came and took the word away from from people who had heard it? It was Satan, right? And so people would say, well, every time the birds are in Scripture, they're always referring to something evil. But uh, obviously that cannot be true because in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, we see the dove coming down and descending upon Jesus Christ who is representative of the Holy Spirit. So we have to understand what is it that that Jesus is talking about when He's talking about the birds nesting under its shade. And the way that we can understand that, I think, is by looking at 
this prophecy here in Ezekiel chapter 17. We won't read this uh, verses 1 through 20, but there in verses 1 through 20, you have a tree which is representative of the kingdom of Babylon. And this tree would be cut down because of Zedekiah's failure to uphold his oath with Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, he broke his treaty with God. And so the tree here is representative of a kingdom. And Ezekiel is saying that that kingdom will be cut down. But, look at verse 22. Let's start with verse uh, yeah, 22. And we'll see that there will one day be a kingdom that will not be cut down. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. And the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree. I exalt the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will perform it. God would one day, according to Ezekiel, plant a tree on the top of a lofty mountain, one in which would never be cut down. In fact, it was so large that, that other birds would come and shade underneath it. And if we were to go to Ezekiel chapter 31, which also alludes to this type of thinking, where Assyria is this great tree, it's a great kingdom, and many other nations uh, come under its shade. What God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here in our passage, is that the kingdom of God is it will be such a great kingdom that many nations on the earth will come and rest in its shade. That Jesus came preaching the gospel, and those who embraced it, although at the time were only a handful, one day would be great. And the the amazing power of God's uh, production of this tree, this kingdom, would be seen by all people to the point where many people would rest under its shade. They would respond to His truth. You don't have to be a certain ethnicity in order to receive the, the uh, truths about the kingdom of God. You don't have to be a a certain people group. God will take people from every kindred, tribe, and tongue, and nation to be a part of His kingdom. So how are we to prepare for this kingdom that Jesus has promised to build? How do we prepare for it? First of all, we need to make sure that we are a resident of that kingdom. You can get your citizenship now into that kingdom by responding to the truth of the Word. And the Word tells us that all who come to Jesus Christ will receive rest. They will receive the rest that comes with salvation. And all you have to do is respond with repentance and faith. By turning from your sin and believing what God has said is true. I mean, there's only two kingdoms that we can be a part of. Which kingdom are you a part of? Of of which kingdom are you a citizen are you a kingdom of God? Are you part of the kingdom of God? If not, then you are part of, of the kingdom of Satan. And you will receive the destruction that is prepared for Satan and his demons. God is calling you to repent 
you need to respond to Him. And then if you're a believer, you already know that you are a resident of that future kingdom, then your responsibility here, as Jesus said, you have been given a great responsibility and so you need to take that and use it. You need to make sure that you're being transformed to be like the King of that kingdom. Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. We'll talk a little bit about this uh, tonight. And so I would strongly urge you to join us tonight as we think about the application of this type of truth uh, as we look at the prophet Amos. And he has the same sort of idea that, that we are to... We, are, we have been given a great privilege as believers. So we need to respond with, with a willing, submissive heart that shows that we take that responsibility seriously. Sanctification, growth in godliness is a process and it comes only by spiritual discipline through the Word. Will you respond to what God has for you today? Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus Christ and the truth that He has taught to us. We're thankful for His example. We're thankful for the rest of Your special revelation that You have given to us, Your Word. And we don't want to take it for granted. We want to respond to it every time it is given to us. Lord, help us not to check out mentally when it comes to Your Word and think, this Word has been around for thousands of years and there's no sense that it has any help for us today. But rather, knowing that You are a God who is all-sufficient and has, as Peter says, given us everything for life and godliness, that we can go to it and see who You are and what You demand of us. So we pray that You'd help us to engage our minds every time Your Word is presented to us so that we would grow in godliness, become more like the King of the kingdom that we long to take part in. And we pray that Jesus Christ would come quickly and set up His kingdom as He has promised to do. And we pray this in the name of our great Savior. Amen.